Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One podcast. And, and look, about a month ago, I got the opportunity to check off one of my professional bucket list items. I went on the Game Theory podcast with Sam Vicini, somebody that I've looked up to in this draft space for a, a hell of a long time. And uh, I guess we're doing a home and home series now because he's coming here on the Box and One podcast with just a few days before the NBA draft to go over a last minute recap of some things, some questions and players that we'd love to riff off of each other on and, and really uh, just get to chat and hoops for about 45 minutes to an hour. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Spins, first and foremost, that is an incredibly kind introduction. It is uh, in every way mutual, first and foremost. I absolutely adore your work. You know that. Um, I am an enormous fan of you, and I am so happy to get to do this. I I had felt a little bit... Uh, a little bit hurt that you hadn't invited me uh, onto the show yet. Like we text back and forth. Like we're, we're friends. Like it, it was just like, Whoa, wait, what's going on here? Like I, I haven't been on yet. This is, this is crazy. Sam, you were the ace in the hole right here. This is one of those don't blow your budget until you have to make that big expense. Oh, we're within draft. Adam. It's time. It's time. anytime, man. You know it. I'm here for you. Well, well, Sam, we have a tradition here at the box and one podcast with any first time guests. And you are not immune to escaping uh, this tradition here. So you're ready. This is a basketball-specific question for you. You're yeah, up three. You're up three with five seconds to go, and it's the other team's ball. Would you instruct your team to foul? Yes, foul up three. You foul up three every time. Every time. The math is very clear on this. In most circumstances that you foul, you have to basically be playing like a team that has a 50% offensive rebounding rate, or you have to be playing like some ridiculous, it has to be like the most insane circumstances to where it's not worth fouling up three. See, I knew I liked you, but now, I mean, are you a fan of banning the take foul? Are you joining the hashtag ban the take foul movement? <laughs> So by ban it, do you mean just like make it so that it is heavily enforced and it's two shots in the ball or something like that? Yeah, right? something that makes it yeah, essentially right. disappear from the game. Yeah, like absolutely, 100%. I'm in on that. Are you in on the quote unquote, I don't like ban the charge, but I like adjust the charge oh, where gosh. guys can't just like slide up under dudes, like the pull the Jayla Williams? move where he is just kind of sliding up under guys taking charges much as I respect Jalen Williams and love him as a player but yeah. uh you know are, are we here for adjust the charge maybe yeah. to where yeah, it's just can. when guys are on the ground we're a major adjust the charge like I don't know what a charge is to the point where after the first weekend of the NCAA tournament I had about a 45 minute long Twitter back and forth argument with one of the referee assigners going over like the mechanics of it, actually what it is, primary versus secondary defenders, the right to space and establishing legal yeah. guarding position, like all of these, what I think are nonsense, BS, undefinable terms. Like, uh, yeah, we don't have to get into it fully, but I am I am really irritated by the way the charge is, is called in today's NBA, particularly yeah. in college and high school hoops too. It's awful there. Yeah, like... I'm not like, look, there are charges there. Are we should not let offensive players do whatever the hell they want. Right. Like I am firmly not in favor of that, but I do believe that we need to adjust it so that we stop frankly, dangerous plays like these plays where guys are incentivized to try and slide underneath 
opposing players. Those are dangerous plays with how athletic the game is, especially once you get up to the college and NBA levels. Uh, I am a big fan of trying to adjust that so we take some of these dangerous plays out of the game. No doubt about it. No, no questions asked. I think we're three for three right there in terms of our alignment. So I think that's an automatic invite back for another episode, Sam. Going three for three on that. But let's do it. So let's dive into the draft class here, right? We're a few days away from the 2022 NBA draft. And and look, I don't know about you. I'm starting to get a little bit sick of talking about the same four or five names at the top of the draft (laughs) class and what's Sacramento going to do it for. Is is Chet Holmgren really an issue being that skinny? Like I'm sick of talking about all of those same things, but I do think we need to comment on the top of the draft class at least a little bit right now. And this is less in terms of comparison to each other and more so about how the top and the elite of this draft class might stack up next to some previous years. So in terms of the the top tiers of the last three drafts, right? In 2019, we had Zion Williamson and John Morant. 2020 was Ant Edwards, Wiseman, and LaMelo Ball. And last year, we had a, a really deep, top of that class with Cade, Jalen Green, Suggs, Mobley, and Barnes. How do you think the top three or, or maybe top four guys of Jabari, Chet, Paolo, and Jaden Ivey really stack up next to what we've seen and go, grown accustomed to at the top of the last few drafts? So I'll speak toward what the NBA focus is, because you, I, I think that that's a little bit more interesting than what you and I think right? Uh, My general idea, having spoken to a lot of NBA teams about this, is that all of Jabari Smith, Paulo Bancaro, Chet Holmgren would have gone lower than Cade Cunningham, Jalen Green, and Evan Mobley last season. Now, that's not to say that these guys aren't great prospects. I just think that last season was seen as an awesome draft class in so many ways. And for the most part, the teams that I've talked to believe that Paula Bancaro, Jabari Smith, Chad Holmgren are all genuine top three level prospects in a normal average draft class. There just isn't really that one guy, right, who stands out above the rest as like a legit number one pick in the vein of a Cade Cunningham, in the vein of a Zion Williamson. Going back to 2020, I would say that You know, it's hard. I I think that these guys would have been in the same tier with Anthony Edwards, LaMelo Ball, James Wiseman. Uh, I I think that they, there's a case that they all could go ahead of those guys, but the 2020 draft is not shaping up to be a particularly strong draft based on what we've seen thus far. And it was not seen as a strong draft at the time. Going back to 2019, Zion Williamson, John Morant, RJ Barrett, I'd say no way any of these guys go ahead of Zion. Right, yeah. I think Ja probably goes ahead of all of them as well. There was a lot of excitement about John Morant that year to the point where people were trying to make a case for him against Zion. And Zion is just so drastically better than all of these guys. And then or at least was as a prospect, right? And from what we've seen, he averaged 27 points as like a 20-year-old in the NBA. Like the guy's a joke when he's on the court. Um, RJ Barrett, I think that there are probably a few 
evaluators that would make a case to me that they would take him over Chet Holmgren just because of some of the concerns about Chet's frame. But I think there are probably also some that would take him lower than Jaden Ivy. So like it, it's kind of, it's kind of hit or miss, right. In terms of where that draft falls 2018, who, who would be 2018? That would be, uh, that was the, uh, that was the Aiton, Doncic, Trey Young, uh, uh, Bagley went second, Jaron Jackson Jr. Up there, like another yeah. good year, which I think is probably more akin to what we saw last year with Agreed. that much top end talent. Agree. I don't think any of these guys would go ahead of any of that top three. I would say that they are seen as akin to probably what Jaron Jackson was yeah. as the fourth overall pick. Yep. And, and I think that probably 2020, as you mentioned, is, is the best comparison to make with, I think, not only just in terms of the three guys that are at the top that are all in that similar tier of talent to where, you know, Edwards, Wiseman and Ball were. But I think there was also leading up to draft day, a lot of diverging opinions about who really was going to be number one. Didn't see a ton of Wiseman up there in that number one spot, but between LaMelo and Anthony Edwards, there was some, some pretty fair split amongst those guys, which I think we're still seeing echoed and where boards are at right now all over the place with a lot of teams preferring Jabari, some having Chet Holmgren there. And, and you know, like me, I'm, I'm a big Paolo Bancaro guy. He's number one on my board right now. So yeah moving around in those different directions. I think that is what makes this more of a unique class at the top, not just that, you know, the talents are pretty close together, but that teams don't seem to have that, uh, that real separation between the three of them. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because the people like me who do mock drafts that are shared widely, and I don't say that to be like a dickhead, but like it, <laughs> happens right and john gavoni's jeremy woos etc right we all ended up with jabari smith chet holmgren paulo bancaro one two three in that order on our mock and i think it doesn't necessarily go toward representing the diversity of opinion that exists across the entire nba at this point regarding just where these guys sit in terms of how close they are and how many different opinions there are about who the number one player is. Uh, and frankly, like how split Orlando could very well be when making this decision. Like from what I gather, they haven't really like a hundred thousand percent confirmed who they're taking at number one yet. So like, I think that, Jabari Smith is currently the odds on favorite and it's reflected in his odds at Las Vegas or in numerous books. But over the last 24 hours, we've seen a drastic shift uh, where Paulo Bancaro has gone from like plus 1800 to plus 500 or something like that. And I think that it's not a question of, cause like Jabari Smith's number hasn't really moved from like that 160 to 180 range. It's more that they got a sh crazy amount of money on Paulo Bancaro in and they had to reflect it in the odds. And it was because Paulo's odds at 18, 12 to one, whatever he was at at specific books, I think were not reflective of reality meaning that he is like a, he is genuinely in the conversation with these guys in a way that 
18 to one, 12 to one does not actually reflect. Or that, as you mentioned earlier, that a lot of the mock drafts and the consensus that's out there amongst the you know, forward facing media seems to have a lot of Bancaro at three. Like that's been what we've heard and what we've yeah. seen from a lot of places. And, and it, that's Intel based. That's not people pulling that out of thin air. But oh, totally. I think yeah. it's much more close to being wide open than the kind of consensus of Paolo at three on that media has really shown. Yeah, look, I, again, am one of these people who make these things. And I will tell you, like, I don't have any certainty on the way this is going to go on draft night. Yeah. Like, just straight up, I do not. And I have informed probably not quite guesses, but like informed inferences maybe yeah. is like a way to put it uh, on the way the draft is going to go down. But they're just that, like they're, they're far from certainty. They're far from me knowing for sure the way this thing is going to go. I, I think there are a number of potential outcomes that could still happen. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. But all right, Sam, we said we weren't going to spend all this time talking about the top guys. So uh in that vein it's my that's my fault you no know, it's I, not I just it, go into it, this you know <laughs> <laughs> look it, that that's the sexy stuff right now and because it's so uncertain it's fun to talk about but uh, i yeah. think for me you know the process of scouting players is always so strange because every year there are one or two guys that pop up really late on my radar to, to dive into that i don't really get a ton of film on or, or feel comfortable with the eval until maybe the final few weeks to a month before draft day. And those guys always scare me a little bit because it kind of feels like, are they sneaking up on me? Am I just going based off of this is a popular name that's rising on boards? And I want to make sure because I trust your scouting eye. And I know we've, we've gone back and forth about some conversations before. I want to make sure what I'm seeing on a lot of this isn't crazy, or at least get your feel for some of these late risers. So, I mean, no one it has been a, a, a guy that's risen faster than Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara over the last month or so. Big winner from the combine, which I know the uh, episode of the Game Theory Pod that we did together, that's what our focus was, is the winners of the combine. And, and he really stood out in that regard. But the more I've watched since then, a lot of the intel that we have on who he is as a person, all of them point in an incredibly positive direction. I mean, what's your take on a guy like Williams who comes on this late in the process and goes from relative unknown to green room invite and lottery and potentially even top 10 type of pick. Yeah. You know, for me, it's not quite as steep a rise as it was for some, if only because by late April, I had him in the first round because I'd been told that he was kind of obliterating everyone out in Santa Barbara. And like, they were just like, Oh no, this guy is a hundred percent a first round pick if this guy isn't a first round pick, what are we doing in the NBA right now? Kind of stuff. Yeah. And I can't remember if it was like late April, early May, something like that. So when he went to the combine and blew up in the way that he did, I, I wasn't surprised. Like I'd kind of been told to expect it, but also because of that, I went back and like really 
dug into the tape with Santa Clara and dug into the way that his game profiles at the next level. And it's just really easy to see the fit, right? He's six foot six and seven foot two wingspan. The growth trajectory is that when he committed to Santa Clara, he was like a six foot three guard and then jumped up to six foot six and has like genuine wing size now while retaining a lot of the same ball skills and the ability to uh, break guys down off the dribble, despite having like that weird, thicker, lower center of gravity uh, that allows him to kind of move guys a little bit. It's a very strange frame uh, that I think really bodes well for him at the next level. So I buy all of the Jalen Williams hype. I see him as a top 20 guy. I know that there are some advanced analytics concerns about him, and I don't take those lightly. Uh, I do tend to trust the tape a little bit more with guys that are in positions that are scarce league wide, such as twos, threes, fours, especially in Jalen Williams's case, where he's a uh, six foot six guy with seven, two wingspan. You can see credibly eventually sticking down onto fours if you need to. So, well, I have some concerns about the athleticism. I have some concerns about the uh, analytics based uh, breakdowns. I, I am a buyer of Jalen Williams and I have him as a top 20 player in my class. I don't have him in the lottery, but I have him as a top 20 guy. Sure. And I think I slotted him at 15, like right outside of yeah. that lottery level. So I, I definitely you know, bought in when I watched the film and went back on it. I, I know our, our friend, Matt Penny, if, if uh, he's somebody that falls in love with guys who were quarterbacks in high school, I am the quintessential sucker for the late bloomer who had point guard skills before they hit their goals. Right, yeah. like that's my, like Anthony Davis, like those guys, that's, that, that's what I fall for every time. And Jalen Williams just is and has that. I love his translation to the league. Um, you know, I, I was talking with a couple other people the other day, affiliated with the Cleveland Cavaliers organization, kind of about Williams and the potential fit there at 14. And, and a worry is you know, he doesn't necessarily have as much uh, uh, volume as a catch and shoot prospect. And my argument back was he was so damn good with the ball in his hands in the system that he played at Santa Clara and in the league there that you can't afford to play him off ball because he's just so damn powerful when you have him there. So there's an excuse for the lack of volume in those ways, but I buy the shot, the mechanics, all of these things. Like he was talking on on a podcast the other day about how much his hand grew as he hit that growth spurt, he couldn't palm a ball when he went into college. And now to have hands the size that he has and be able to continually be a really good catch and shoot prospect and and a strong shooter, I think that speaks to the touch that he has as well. So I'm fully, fully bought in on every single thing about Jalen Williams there. Like part of me wanted to go a little bit higher. Part of me felt like lottery was a little bit too rich. So like, right there at 15 first guy outside the lot of we feel good about where we put him there. Yeah, no, I like it. I I like it a lot. Uh, I have enough athletic concerns about him translating on defense to where I think I have him at like 17 or something like that, but everything that we see in terms of skill set just makes you want to believe at the end of the day. So yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a Jalen Williams believer. Well, speaking of late risers, I, I struggle with this one even a little bit more because there are a lot of statistical concerns that stand out for me. It's Usman Jang for the New Zealand breakers, right? Like how much do we trust a late season rise when the early season stuff was really that bad? He's, 
He's a unique prospect because of how he plays, his size, his handling ability, all of those things about him make him pretty delicate in terms of how he has to be brought along and developed. But I'm so lost right now as to how much to buy into that late season push versus you look at the last two years cumulatively, he's shot 27% from three. He's not physically ready to handle, you know, bigger wings in the NBA. And, and I'm not really sure how scalable his role is to being more of a complimentary piece and not playing with the ball in his hands. So a lot of question marks with Jang for me. Yeah. I tend to be more on your side of the spectrum. I have him again, outside of the lottery. I'd be pretty surprised at this point if he didn't hear his name called in the lottery, given, sure. you know, where the direction seems to be headed at this point. Uh, I have similar concerns to you. I have similar athletic concerns uh, to you. He plays, he gets low, but he doesn't play very, uh, a very physical brand of basketball. Not at all. Like yeah. he, he does try to jump stop, like not even jump stop, like runner floater, a lot of shots at the basket as opposed to using his length and extending to finish and being willing to like bounce through contact and try and score that way. Uh, I don't know. It's tricky. It's really, really tricky with him because the other part of this equation is that for him to work, he basically is going to have to shoot it, right? Yep. And the last month and a half of the season, he really shot it well. Throughout his career up until then, he hasn't really shot it well. But the mechanics are clean enough to where you can buy it. There are enough questions for me where I have him outside of the lottery. I would rather take a shot on someone like Tari Eason, personally. Um, just, you know, similarly, six foot eight, seven foot two wingspan. Uh, enormous, physical, strong, great defender, has shot questions. I think I would probably bet on Jeng to shoot a little bit more than Eason, but I think that Eason impacts the game uh, uh, at a very, very high level defensively to where I just believe in that frame kind of translating. Uh, the thing with Jeng, though, that is important to contextualize is that, you know, th this was a guy that similarly desired Williams last year. The breakers were very unsettled this year in terms of the way that their schedule played out in terms of like living out of a hotel room, similarly to how Zaire Williams had to like a number of different factors kind of came together to where it's very easy to buy him being unsettled as a young teenage French kid moving to, across the world to a new country. Right. So I think that it is worth taking that into context and understanding it might've taken him a couple of months to adjust, or it might be a situation where the breakers were terrible this year. They were the worst team in the NBL yeah. and finally just gave him minutes and he played in the minutes and it was fine. But you know, th there are a lot of different ways that you can sell yourself uh, positively or negatively on Usman Jang. Yeah, well, I, I think that's that's really good context to, to bring to light and, and to make sure that we're we're keeping track of there. Like, I, I certainly don't want to punish a kid for all of the harsh circumstances that go on around things. Um, I think for me, it comes down to that risk assessment thought about how the draft goes. Right. Like when you have a lottery pick, 
are there other guys that are a little bit more certain of delivering something as opposed to the high risk, high reward type of, of return that a guy like Usman Jang would be able to deliver. So it depends franchise to franchise or kind of what you're looking for at that moment in time. But I tend to get a little bit scared away by those really, really high risk, high reward type of guys that I think Jang has turned into. Yep. No, I agree. Um, I, I, I get why teams are infatuated though. Guys that are six foot 10, that can handle the ball. that can pass like he can. I get it. Yeah. 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 I get it too. Sam, I need you to sell me on O'Shea Agbaji because every time I watch him, I, I like drop him down a slot or two down my board and I know he shoots the crap out of it. I know he's athletic. I know he's a solid defender, but like every time I watch him, there's just something that's, that's not clicking for me. Like, where are you on Agbaji and, and what would be your sales pitch to try to get me bought back in? I think I have him at like 19, 1920, something like that. Not uh, yeah. It's hard to get excited about him, right? It's hard to be like, oh, this is like the new cool thing that we're drafting, right? Uh, what, what's the thing that uh, from How I Met Your Mother uh, that Barney Stinson used to say, new is always better. The new thing in our mind is always going to be the thing that is exciting to us, right? Oshai has been in college for four years. He's uh, you know, someone that we're incredibly familiar with. He won the most outstanding player of the Final Four. We just have so much intrinsic inherent knowledge that as we have to dive deeper into guys like Jalen Williams, like Dalen Terry, like Usman Jang, like Ishmael Kamagate, like we forget sometimes about guys that are just fucking good producers, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Oshai is a let's say somewhere between 38 to 40% three-point shooter. I don't know what the exact number is going to be in the NBA, but he's going to shoot in the NBA. I don't think either of us have too, too many concerns about that. Uh, on top of that, you look at his numbers uh, in terms of his, uh, I believe his shooting from distance. I believe that it's very, very high. Uh, he hit 40% of his three-point attempts from beyond 25 feet this year. He hit 26, per, 26 out of 54 of his corner three-point attempts this year. Like, these things in terms of his shooting are genuinely very translatable to being a great NBA shooter, which makes you buy into him being a legit NBA floor spacer. Mm -hmm. On top of that, he's six foot five. He's strong as hell. He's a really good on-ball switch defender. I think some of his off-ball instincts, sometimes he gets a little bit lost. Yeah. Sometimes he, you know, doesn't always impact the game in that way, in the way that you want him to. How much of that has to do with just having an enormous offensive role and getting a little bit tired and maybe disengaging 10% on the defensive end? I, I think that he is just so easily translatable to being a rotation player in the mm -hmm. NBA. Uh, it's not the most exciting thing in the world to draft the guy that is going to be your fifth to seventh best player on your team. But you look through drafts. I mean, that's typically the range where, you know, the 19th best player in the, in any given draft is something like a borderline starter. Yeah. Well, and in the past few drafts, we've seen more shooting specialist type of guys go 
in that middle part of the first round of the, the end of the lottery, right? Like those Cam Johnsons a couple of years ago, Chris Duarte and Corey Kispert last year. Like it's not outrageous to think that if you just get 40% three-point production in functional areas and somebody who's solid enough defensively, just take him in that middle part of the first round because it's like hitting a double instead of trying to swing for the fences and you maybe strike out. Yeah. And look, I like taking him at 19 more than I like taking him at 13 or 12 or something like that. But, you know, if, if a team has a genuine need, if it was like the Utah jazz at number, you know, 14, and I'm not saying that they're negotiating with the Cavs or anything, please don't, don't aggregate. aggregate that. No, I'm just using this as an example, but like if the Utah jazz were picking at 14, I'd be like, yeah, great. Oh, Like, this is exactly what they could have used last year in the playoffs. Like they, he probably could have stepped in and been in their rotation last year, uh, given how much of a mess on wings. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, and I think of like, again, on its face, talent wise, I think he's more in the, in the twenties of a prospect before he yeah. turns out on my overall board. But when I'm sitting here thinking about a team like Cleveland at 14 or Charlotte right around them, 15, like it, the, the ability to just have a dependable floor spacer for what they need is important and valuable. And like, I, I get it. If he's the pick there, I get it. It's, it's, it's hard for me to get excited about that, but I'm glad you, you, you did a, a successful job of bringing me back down and saying, don't forget about baby in the corner over there. Like all, all that consistent production does matter. And and look like, I'm a hypocrite on this as well. Like, let's be clear. Like I have Dale and Terry ahead of Ochai Ogbaji. Like (laughs) I've been talking about Dalen on my podcast with Matt for months now, it feels like since freaking January or something like that. And we loved him then. We saw him as a 2023 guy, not really a 2022 guy, but he entered this draft. And what, do you not take the guy that you think is going to be an NBA player long-term? Look, I get that, you know, it is somewhat hypocritical to be, to give the case that I said, and then also have Ochai at 19 on my board below Jalen Williams and Dalen Terry. I just think that their skill sets, their length, their athleticism, they give them slightly more upside than Ochai, even if I feel more certain that Ochai is going to be an NBA player. Sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. And like, I I get worried when I watch, Oshai dribble like I just I that's not going to be his role in the half court it's it's not something I love he's very very athletic in the open floor off cuts and back screens and lob plays but not off the bounce like there's just there's enough there that has me worried about you know is his ceiling really going to be like an 18 to 24 minute a game role player who comes in and knocks down shots and isn't a movement shooter and like all the things that he might not be he's still a solid player but it, it does lower that ceiling of I just I have a very hard time believing that he's going to end up being a starter on a really good team well and you mentioned the functional athleticism of his game right he's a ridiculous open floor athlete like Mm -hmm. unbelievable even on defense like you see it sometimes where he's not quite as functional in the way that he rotates his hips he's not quite as functional uh in the way that he is able to get the most out of that whenever he's in crowded spaces or when he has to go up through contact and can't load up off of both feet. Right. So I do agree. Like, I agree with you. There are real concerns here. I buy him. You know, that's why I say I like him more in a switch scenario defensively than like a drop scenario where he has to fight through screens because 
fighting through screens is so much about using your hips and getting skinny and being able to like kind of get around and then have to turn your hips and recover to try and contest from behind or contest from the side view mirror. Like there are a lot of circumstances where I'd be a little bit worried about putting them in, but if you're just going to run a switching scheme and you're going to use them to shoot, I kind of love it. I think he can really play. Yep. In, in the right team, in the right system, the right setting, he, he definitely makes a, a lot of sense as a, a high value role player. Yeah, I agree. Sam, look, we're talking about some guys here that I've been a little bit hesitant on, but I, I want to turn the, the conversation now to some guys that maybe you and I are a little bit higher on than consensus because right now we've lived in that first round range. But I think a lot of people out there are always looking for who's that sleeper guy. Who's that one prospect that might not get enough love right now, but is going to carve out a solid NBA career. And, and for anything else, just that fact that we believe it, right? Like sometimes right. you can't describe it fully in terms of, you know, all of the traits, all the skills that you're seeing. It's just, I believe in his skill package and the upside that he has in his future. So I'm going to turn the floor over to you first. I'd like to go through two guys that we each bring to the table here that we're just a little bit higher on than the consensus. Who's your, your number one guy that you think is a little bit uh, underrated this year? My number one guy that I think is a little bit underrated. I actually quite like Ishmael Kamagate and I have a first round grade on him. And the reason for that is I see in him, he is very light on his feet in a way that, it is hard to find in guys that are six foot 11 with genuine defensive instincts that have a seven foot four wingspan and have pretty good weak side rim protection instincts. I think you really are going to have to teach him fundamentals almost across the board in pick and roll coverages. Yeah. But like, I'm willing to go down that road in trying to develop those skills in a way that maybe some people aren't. And like, I get it if you have him like in the forties, because you think that, you know, oh, he gets caught in no man's land, you know, and pick and roll coverages too often. Or, uh, oh, you know, he, you know, sees a squirrel in the stands and goes to chase the squirrel and then, like, you know, has to try and recover back to, you know, off of the pump fake that the squirrel made in the stands. Like, I, I get it, but I would rather be willing to teach that guy not to fall for pump fakes or not to fall for, uh, just the little things where you can get stuck in as a young developing big. Uh, when you have his tools, his tools, I think, are uh, a lot of what modern NBA teams are looking for. I've seen a lot of people compare Jalen Duran to someone like Robert Williams, right? Uh, largely because I think that people see Jalen Duran as a little bit more switchable than I do. I'm not really a fan of Jalen Duran's switchability. Uh, I actually see Ishmael Kamagate as not better than Jalen Duran. I have Jalen Duran much higher on my board, but I see him as stylistically more similar to Robert Williams in the way that he stays light on his feet, contests shots at a really high level, keeps his hands high, really good weak side rim protector, uh, things like that. Just stylistically, that's kind of what I see when I watch Kamagate that makes me very, uh, very interested in what his you know, what he looks like when he's 24 years old, as opposed to right now being 21. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, a well-formulated argument for him. Like if you're drafting on raw tools and, and look, I say this all the time, 
the meat and potatoes of all of these guys development takes place after they reach the NBA, not before it. Like they're still very, very unfinished products for what we're going to see in the league over the next five to 10 years. So um, with that context in mind, like why not draft for raw tools and somebody that you believe has more versatility in terms of pick and roll coverage, elite length, good natural instincts, that can now be harnessed to play the right way. I, I certainly buy the argument and, and got really close to giving Kamigate a first round grade on my end. Uh, yeah. I think I actually ended up with him in the top 30, but just didn't do an actual first round grade for those guys. There are only 22 guys in this class that I felt really comfortable in saying yeah. they'd be a first round pick in pretty much every other year. So like Kamigate has a lot of upside and I definitely see it on the defensive end. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's actually a, a pretty smart choice on your end. Yeah, I, I have one more that nobody. I feel like this person has disappeared from the NBA draft conversation, just period, point blank, the entire well, time. Let's let's hang on to that one because I got one for you here that I know you okay. and Penny were a little bit higher on initially, and that's that's Max Christie out of Michigan State. Yeah, was that your guy? No, it's not. Um, People will talk about Max. Uh, I'm talking about someone that like people might think is like barely alive at this point. Um, (laughs) No, I like Max. I I also have a first round grade on Max. Yeah, Yeah, I do too. I I like, you know, when I go back and do the rewatch of things, obviously the stats stand out. He didn't shoot the ball in the way that he's capable of this year. Shooting is one of those traits that isn't absolutely binary in terms of how much you make versus, you know, what your misses are. But at the end of the day, it kind of is. Uh, I think that he's going to turn into a really good shooter. His process is right. I think that in the middle parts of the first round, you take swings on either high, high end starter caliber players or the perfect compliments to the stars that you might be able to have on your roster. And I think Christie fits really neatly into that second category because he is a movement shooter. He's pretty smart in how he creates space off of screens. And I was actually really impressed by his on-ball defense. Like that was one that I think goes really underrated in this process. He moves his feet well. He's decently long. He competes. He gets skinny through screens in ways that a guy like Agbaji doesn't. Uh, I just, I really found myself buying into Christie when I watched the film and thinking if that shot falls at 36% instead of 32, 33. Now we're talking about a guy who's a legitimate one and done lottery candidate. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up the defense because as you know, you know, you live in the grassroots space uh, probably even a little bit more than I do, but the question for Max coming into the year was, Oh, he's a little bit soft. Like, right. Oh, he's not that tough, right. man. He defended his ass off. Yeah. Like yeah. he really took on tough assignments night in night out in the big 10 and I thought did a really, really good job. So I'm really glad that you brought up the defensive aspect of Max Christie. He shot terribly this year. I am not worried about it. I think that dude is a shooter. I am just buying it at the end of the day. And I get it if people don't. I do. Uh, he has incredible balance. He has a great release point. It's very high. Uh, you can buy it from both the mid-range level and from three-point range. Uh, he can shoot off of movement. There's just... the shot didn't fall sometimes shots don't fall for freshmen it happens like i guarantee you that if he was in college basketball next year he would have shot 38 plus percent from three like you can do it and i think with the defensive concerns that he had coming into the year a really wise choice on his part to go to michigan state like playing for a coach Mm -hmm. like tom Izzo, that's a great defensive coach and prepares you 
for NBA basketball in ways that probably some other coaches might not. Like, I think that made him tougher. That made him a little bit more polished on that end of the floor. And at the end of the day, like years from now, that's really going to help him out with where his career is. A lot of times, you know, the coach and the style, the system that you play in in college does have an impact on how prepared you are for the NBA and what trajectory it sets you on. And, and I always think the world of Izzo because of how he teaches, but I think this is just a really smart fit between Christie, a guy who didn't have that toughness moniker now coming out of Michigan state with a year full of game tape that shows he can play that way. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I agree across the board. I've, I think I'm max a little bit lower than you do. I think I have him at like 27 or so, okay. but yeah, no, I'm a fan. Yeah, he's 21, 22 on my board, right around like that same range of as Egbaji and Dalen Terry for me. Those three are, are yeah. very similar. Yeah. yeah so, like all right, that. Sam, who is your other guy that you wanted to bring up here that though, has fallen off the face of the earth and no one remembers is alive? Is Isaiah Mobley in this draft? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, didn't participate in the combine. Uh, I don't know if anyone has seen him uh, any time recently. Uh, I live in Australia. So, uh, you know, if I lived in LA still, I'd go over there where Wasserman's holding pre-draft workouts and go see him. But uh, I feel like nobody's seen him for a while. I think he's really good. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. Like, I think he's actually a good basketball player. I have a top 40 grade on him. Uh, He has all of the things that you look for from a potential role-playing big in today's NBA. I buy him as a shooter. I think he's going to shoot, you know, 35% from three as a guy that's six foot 10 with a seven foot three wingspan that can credibly play as a small ball center. He's a phenomenal passer. He can grab and go on the break. Uh, He's really good defensively is what I think people don't recognize. He is absolutely awesome at using angles and using his positioning and using his physical strength through his core particularly and his lower half to be able to kind of you know stand guys up whenever they try and go through them you can't really go through his chest and then as a rim protector if he's the primary guy he is really good at using the principle of verticality kind of being like an Al Horford style not like Al, Al Horford drastically better than he is but like in the way that Al Horford is an effective rim protector Isaiah Mobley does similar things when he's the primary guy his problem is that he's not always available as a rim protector. Yeah. Uh, how much of that is he needed to stay on the floor all the time? They desperately needed him. USC like fell apart whenever he was off the court. Could be. Maybe he just like made some business decisions for them. But like I, I look at him and I see a real translatable NBA skill set. Yeah. Yep. No, no doubt about it. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Like I think too many times we look at big men prospects and see that they don't have really high block numbers and assume that they're not impactful defenders or guys that are going to be really solid help defenders, rim protectors, whatever. Like I love his switchability and versatility, but I agree with you. He is pretty solid when it comes to verticality and playing on the interior. The, the one thing for me that really got me to buy into Mobley, like I had him in the mid to late part of the second round. And then the NCAA tournament happened. And in that game against Miami, when they had all those guards out there and USC's guards were panicking to get rid of the basketball and couldn't do literally anything, it was Mobley who went into takeover mode, facilitated the offense, kind of was their point big for a period in time, flying all over the place defensively, trying to keep them in that game. Like 
just the mentality that goes into that, let alone the skill level to be able to do it, stood out to me and said, like, this guy has to be a priority in the early parts of the second round. I could even justify someone taking him in the late 20s. Like, I just, I get it. it it's the rare type of, of big man who has enough versatility and polish combined in his game that you can plug him into a rotation and get something out of him. I just wish that he existed on the planet Earth. At this <laughs> Here's what we're going to do. I'm, when we're done recording this, I'm going to go put a wanted poster out there on Twitter <laughs> and see if anybody can get a reward. We'll, we'll find uh, the right reward to get for getting yeah. uh, Isaiah Mobley alive to us. Yeah, oh, man. This is probably the most publicity Isaiah Mobley has gotten throughout the pre-draft process is us talking about him. Well, well, we'll give one more guy a little bit of publicity here who I'm super, super high on that I don't think many others are right now. Uh, Travion Williams out of Purdue. And this, this is one of those that's controversial in some ways because I very much understand the argument for why he might not translate to the NBA and might not make it, right? Like the defensive stuff, and the lack of proven shooting range is a tough one-two combo to be a non-elite athlete in the NBA. But there's just something there that I buy in. And I can't put my finger on it or fully explain it. I think he's the best passer in this year's draft. It's oh, not I, a, I, yeah, I, I was going to say, I can put my finger on it. I think he's a basketball genius. He's like, he you watch him play, he's a genius on the court. Yep. And, and it translates in so many more ways than people think because – you know, the post-up is not utilized as a form of one-on-one -on -one scoring anymore, but there are enough teams out there that will facilitate through the low post. And that's what Travion does well. Um, you know, I keep getting hung up on this idea of him and Jaden Ivey coexisting in Purdue's scheme last year. Like how many times was I sitting here in, you know, January, February, banging my head against the wall saying, can we please see Jaden Ivey in a spread pick and roll? Like for the love of God. Yeah. This is a top five NBA prospect. Can we please see him operate a little bit more in that way? As I've gone back and taken more time to think about it, the fact that Painter wanted to play through Travion a little bit more than he did through Jaden Ivey. I don't know if that says a lot about Painter and his stubbornness. I'm sure it says something, um, but it probably says a little bit about Travion too and just how like unique of a passing prospect he is and, and how he can be just that role playing, like facilitating big man yeah. off the bench for an NBA team. I'm really, I'm really willing to buy into that in the second round and say, like, I just, I believe he's going to make it because he's so damn good at one thing. I think that it probably says more about Painter than it does about <laughs> the players. Uh, and I feel bad because, like, I, I, I think the world of Matt Painter is a college sure. basketball coach. Like, I think he is absolutely outstanding. Great. Anyone who's ever worked for Matt Painter will tell you he is just the best person to work for. Yeah. Like, yeah. it is super loyal. Yeah. A loyal guy, a dude that is just like a real human being, like a great person. Um, I've never heard a bad word about him uh, in terms of like the way he treats his staff. He treats everyone as equals, like from the lowest guy on the totem pole all the way up to his assistants, like all the way up to the players. It's, I think he fucked up this year. <laughs> I do. And like, you're, you're, you kind of made it like a binary thing where like, you know, he could have run through the post or he could have run spread, pick and roll. 
why aren't we just like short rolling Trevion Williams into the high post? Because where the passing also really translated this year was from the high post. So like, I, it's hard for me to get past that. It's hard for me to get past like how much better they looked when Trevion was out there versus Zach Eady. I just, I, I, yeah, I don't know. But to get, to get to your point on Trevion, I think he has no chance on defense. <laughs> like, yeah, he's I, I, this is typically the kind of marginal inefficiency as a draft prospect that I really like to look for, right? A guy that has these holes that will just immediately knock him off of some people's boards. And again, I'm going to be a hypocrite by saying, like, I love these guys typically that, like, you know, some guys look at it, some guys don't. Um, I, I just think he has no chance to defend. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I really wish he did. And, and like, part of it is too, you know, I, who came up with fat is potential in disguise, right? Uh, you know, I think it might be like an Ethan Strauss thing. Um, he's like down to like 9% body fat now. And he's mm-hmm. still 260 pounds, 265 pounds. Like, I, I just wonder if there's much more room for his frame to continue to improve uh, in the way that you would hope moving forward. He's just like kind of a big boned guy. And I feel bad saying it because this is kind of like typically the kind of guy I would love super intelligent plays the game unselfishly, like all of it. I want to buy all of it. Mm -hmm. I just can't. Does that, does that change if he's reliably shooting the three? Yes, absolutely. I've seen no evidence that he can do that in a game. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That, that's, and that's the swing skill for me. Like if, if yeah. Travion can become a stretch big and work on that as much as he does his defensive stuff, I think he's just way too lethal of an offensive threat to not be on the roster. Now I'm not basing. And, and by the way, like where, where do you have him is my question. 33, 32. Yeah. Okay. Like yeah. he's not a first round grade guy, but I'm just, I want to take a swing on somebody with that unique of a skill because I think it plays really well off of star players in the pick and roll with that short roll and finding ways to get them easy buckets. Like the, the golden state warriors style of play of your stars don't have to dribble and pound the ball for 24 seconds, each possession, have them cut and move off ball and somebody create easy looks for them. They're not going to wear down as a result of that over the long run. I I think guys like, you know, creative bigs really help out with that. And again, it's just the right type of swing for me to want to take in this particular class in the earlier part of the second round. But I, yeah. I think he's going to shoot it. I'm not basing that off of literally any type of evidence. Like, I just, I just, I like the guy enough to want to believe that and, and yeah. call me crazy for it. But I, I really love his game. I love it. And so much of this too is going to be dependent on like how you want to run your second unit, right? Like I'm not super interested in like having to completely change my offense and run like, you know, running the ball through the post in the second unit and, you know, letting Trevion rock, you know what I mean? But he has short roll skills. There are translatable skills to the spread pick and roll scheme that I would want to run if I was running a team. Uh, he can grab and go in the way that I would like to have guys be able to grab and go. Like, it was funny. I, I was talking to people that were like at the octagon workout and they were just like, this guy was like dribbling the ball. Like he was a guard. 
And yeah. it was ridiculous. Like he could handle the ball. Like it was nobody's business. Mm-hmm. I think that like he has more dexterity there than what he's even shown at Purdue at yep. this point. Yeah. I yeah. just can't get there on defense. And I don't blame you for it, but that's if we're talking about a rational confidence guys, like that's my one irrational confidence guy in this draft. And I'm just, you know what, I'm going to swing on him and see what happens, but not in the first round, but uh, definitely a guy that I'm higher on than most Sam. Yep. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Always good to, to see you and chat with you before we get you out of here, please, please, please let the people know what you have coming out here between now and draft day. I know there's a uh, 9,000 page manual on all everything to do with the 2022 draft class, but uh, what else are you working on? What can people find you doing in coverage on draft night? Spins, when is this going up? Uh, this is going to be going up tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, the 21st, first day of so summer. So you, within a couple of hours of when this goes up, you're going to be able to find my draft guide. It is going to be up on The Athletic. It comes out on Tuesday, folks. Unclear if it's going to be, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning, 10 a.m., 12 p.m., unclear. Sometime by midday, you're going to have my draft guide. It's 90,000 words. It's, I think, like 75 pages or something like that. It's uh, breakdowns of the top 75 guys in this class. I didn't get to 100 this year. I feel like a failure. I know. I'm sorry. I just have a lot of, you know, on-camera stuff and have the podcast that I'm dealing with. It, You know, it's, it's a lot to kind of manage and juggle at once. So, I am really, really excited for you guys to see that. I will also have my mock coming tomorrow. Uh, I know people have been waiting. I haven't done a mock update since I think mid-May. And I know that it's that time of year. And I know that people want to know where I am on this class. Again, like it's it's a time commitment with the draft guide and everything where, you know, my branches are pulled in 45 different directions this time of year. So go look for the mock draft. I will have a ton of different stories with our beat writers up Washington, the bucks ones up right now with the Timberwolves, with John Krasinski, the Knicks, et cetera. I'm sure there'll be a couple others that go up. I might also, if I have a chance to do it, do skill level superlatives. So who is the best ball handler? Who is the best uh, shooter? Who's the best pull-up shooter? Who's the best defender? Uh, you know, getting through screens, etc. I'm not sure if I'm going to have time for that yet, but it might go up before the draft. It might not Uh, go to the athletic. You'll be able to find all of this great work. It's super fun. And thank you for having me on. Finally, Adam, this has been great. Always, man. This is, this was absolutely great. You are uh, just so you know, I have cleared about three hours of my schedule tomorrow (laughs) afternoon to sit down and read that draft guide and take my copious last minute notes there. So uh, Uh, really, really appreciate you joining us. Uh, Glad we were able to get this to happen. Let's just go kick back and enjoy some draft night stuff. Like at the end of the day, we still just love this as fans too, right? Like we love watching how this stuff unfolds. So reminder to everybody out there, mute your uh, Woj and Shams notifications for the night. Like just watch the draft the way that it's meant to be watched and uh, and enjoy all the, the chaos that goes into one of the most fun nights of the year. But signing off here, I'm Coach Spins. Thank you so much for watching. And a reminder to always hashtag ban the take foul.